0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I have a very interesting and impactful email from a patron that I want to read for you. And he writes, I want to ask you about PTSD for combat vets. I listened to the episode with you and a few other people discussing PTSD on live radio. It touched home with me. And honestly, I cried because it put some things into perspective that I hadn't realized about PTSD. I am active duty infantry army. In the past, I was deployed to Afghanistan, and my job was to kill insurgents. I gunned on over 80 combat missions, and I have several confirmed kills. One kill was just 15 meters away. That one haunts me more than any Of my other kills for a number of reasons. Okay, just uh, chiming in here on the email, he includes some details about this moment that I'm not gonna read. His account was graphic and really painted a picture for me in terms of how traumatic this moment would have been for him, but I won't read those uh, here. Okay, going on with his email. We also lost a fellow soldier. I arrived on the scene soon after he died. It still haunts me today. I was kind of in shock. Again, just chiming in here. He also gives some details here about that moment that I won't read, but suffice it to say that he witnessed some very disturbing things. Okay, going on with the email. I would really appreciate if you could do a full episode just on PTSD and combat and maybe include some secondary PTSD for family members. Okay, well, that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about PTSD. I'm going to talk about for combat uh, vets, for military folks, and also for family members and friends of people who are veterans. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. Okay, first of all, let's just talk about PTSD in general. It is a diagnosis that is within the DSM-5 and has been in the DSM for a number of decades. I can't remember the first um, edition that it showed up in, but uh, this is not a history podcast yet, so let's not go into that. Okay, so the symptoms of P- – so let me just start off by saying that PTSD is often misunderstood, as is a lot of our diagnoses in this field. It's often uh, misdiagnosed because people either don't really understand what PTSD looks like exactly or – so so we there are clinicians who don't who – who have a hard time recognizing PTSD – and we also have clinicians who tend to overdiagnose with PTSD. They will find, you know, like a kid who witnessed domestic violence, and just automatically uh, diagnose them with PTSD. So, PTSD suffers from both underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. Uh, so it it has that confusion. It, it's actually a pretty complicated disorder. It's not just that you've been traumatized, for instance. It's also not just that you have symptoms l- after the fact of being traumatized. There's there's a lot of very specific criteria. And the way that I see it and the way that many people see it and the way that the science seems to be pointing us in the direction of is that when you're traumatized, meaning when when you go through an experience that is scary – really is because is it you know it could be life threatening or it might not be life threatening it just has to be scary to you and it has to be scary on a bodily level it can't just be intellectually scary you know like to me global warming is intellectually scary to me, but it doesn't keep me up at night the way that uh, having to get a uh you know a vaccine <laughs> will keep me up at night right so getting a getting a shot for me although i'm better now is extremely scary to my body to my mind i'm like getting a shot means nothing there's no risk or whatever risk there is it's so minuscule so getting a vaccine is not a big deal intellectually but deep down in my brain i'm i'm terrified of it whereas global warming i'm that my deep part of my brain is just not terrified of it which is you know a big reason why as a society, we're not doing anything about global warming or climate change. But anyway, so it just has to be a situation, tr- this sort of trauma that PTSD is referring to. It has to be something that that's, that your body reacts to in a terrifying way, which results in a brain uh, mechanism kicking in that ultimately results in PTSD later on. For instance, a car crash or even a car crash that you almost have, like you almost get in a car crash or someone threatens to hurt you or a sexual assault or witnessing sexual assault or witnessing violence, obviously being in a violent situation or even having killed someone else in combat. When you kill someone in combat, although your life isn't necessarily threatened, although it likely is, that doesn't necessarily have to be present in order for you to be traumatized. There's a lot of talk about what qualifies as trauma. And I find that a lot of the conversations just bother me because it's subjective. Fear is subjective. And that's all you have to have present is is fear, a, a bodily sense of fear, not an intellectual sense, but your body reacts with terror. And when your body does that, it Uh, uh, is the way we see it is that your brain has a mechanism that kicks in that ultimately results in PTSD happening. Essentially, your brain locks in the memory of the trauma of the fear and doesn't let go of it. And the brain engages in a lot of mechanisms to try to cope with that with that nagging memory, or that memory that is that is playing over and over again. Now, of course, neurologists listening to me would say, "Kirk, you're using all the long, all the wrong language," which is fine to say, but I, I'm just trying to put it in my own terms here. Okay, so let's look at post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. The symptoms. So, just reading here, uh, criterion A. Exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. Number one, directly experiencing the traumatic event. Number two, witnessing in person the events as it occurs to others. Three, learning that a traumatic event has occurred to a close family member or close friend. Uh, Number four, experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to averse details of the traumatic events. For example, first responders collecting human remains, police officers repeatedly exposed to details of child abuse and so on. So so the DSM-5 has a pretty broad definition of trauma which I enjoy. Okay, criterion B. Presence of one or more of the following intrusion symptoms. Okay, so so criterion B. So criterion A is you have to be a traumatized. B is there are in, there are intrusion symptoms. For instance, recurrent involuntary or intrusive distressing memories. So these are flashbacks, right? Uh, Number two, recurrent distressing dreams. Number three, dissociative reactions, like flashbacks in which the individual feels or acts as if the traumatic event was reoccurring. Also, intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure to internal or external external cues that symbolize or so. so in other words, when – like I have a friend who is a vet, and whenever he goes underneath an overpass in Seattle, although his intellectual mind knows that there's no threat, he has a PTSD reaction because it reminds him of places where IEDs were would often be placed when he was at war. So whenever he'd pass over under an overpass, under a bridge, when he was – in Iraq or Afghanistan, he always had to worry, like, is, is this one of those moments where a bomb is going to blow, blow up? And so because he was traumatized by that, when he comes back to Seattle, and he goes under a bridge, he his body goes into a panic mode. And so this is this is that intrusive uh, memory or intrusive thoughts that's happening. Number five, marked physiological reactions to internal or external cues, so blah, blah, blah. So, so you have to have this some sort of so PTSD, in order to qualify for the diagnosis, you have to be traumatized, and you have to have some sort of intrusive memory, intrusive thought or intrusive symptoms. Okay, a criterion B, or C, sorry, persistent avoidance of stimuli. So this is the avoidance category, avoidance of or efforts to avoid distressing memories, thoughts or feelings about uh, the, the trauma. Number two, avoidance of or efforts to avoid external reminders, blah, blah, blah. So you have to have the intrusive, you have to be traumatized, you have to have the intrusive symptoms, and you have to have the avoidance of stimuli that are associated with the trauma. So, you know, just going off of my example with my friend, if he avoided driving under bridges, then that would qualify for this. Uh, It's usually much more pervasive than that. For instance, if a woman was traumatized by sexual violence from, uh, you know, a male, or her dad, she she might avoid men, she, uh, or she might avoid relationships with men. So it, it it might not just be bridges, it might be much more uh, involved. Okay. Criterion D, negative alterations in cognitions and mood associated with a traumatic event. So one inability to remember an important aspect of the event, Number two, persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs or expectations about oneself other so uh, self-esteem issues. Uh, number three, persistent distorted cognitions about the cause and consequences of the traumatic event that lead the individual to blame him or herself or others. Number four, persistent negative emotional state, so fear, horror, anger, guilt, shame, so some kind of negative emotional state that is persistent over time. Markedly diminished interest or participation in significant activities. So, so this criterion is often uh, associated with depression. It it can look very much like depression. Feelings of detachment and estrangement from others. Persistent inability to experience positive emotions. So, so criterion D. It you can it, if you want a heuristic you just think of it as depression although it's a little bit more specific than that okay criterion e marked alterations in arousal or reactivity associated with a traumatic event so irritability angry outbursts hypervigilance meaning that you are overly vigilant about making sure that you're safe reckless or self-destructive behavior exaggerated startle response this is actually very common to people with PTSD that They'll tend to, you know, if you come around the corner and you and you and you surprise them, they're much more likely to, you know, jump out of their skin and scream. Or if they hear a loud noise, obviously, if you're a vet and you hear a loud bang, your your body associates that with danger, and it and your body will react very quickly to it, uh, even though in your mind you know that it was just a book that fell on the ground or something. Problems with concentration and sleep disturbance. So this is um, ha- this is sort of a hodgepodge in my mind of different symptoms. It's harder to to summarize criterion E. In uh, usually they just call it alterations in arousal. But uh, again, irrit- irritability, self-destructive behavior, hypervigilance, startle response, concentration problems, and sleep problems. So think of it as just being agitated, generally speaking. Okay, F, duration of the disturbance is more than one month. And G, the disturbance causes clinically significant distress, which is true to all DSM diagnoses. And H, the disturbance is not attributed to uh, another issue like physiological issue or substance abuse or medical condition. So, so the G and the H are common to most, if not all DSM diagnoses. Okay, so, and there are some um, other uh, clarifiers here, and specifiers, but anyway, I hope you get the idea. So post-traumatic stress disorder has one of the longest descriptions in the DSM. In fact, it might have the longest. Usually DSM diagnoses, you know, they just take up a certain amount of space on the page, PTSD takes up in its description uh, one, two, three and a half pages. One, two, three and a half. Yeah, which is – and its main main copy is a a page and a half. So it's a complicated thing, and although it's a common thing. So although it's complicated, it's actually a common reaction to trauma. And since in our lifetimes, the chance that we will have – been traumatized at some point in our life is actually pretty high. A lot of people suffer from PTSD. And since our system doesn't really and our society doesn't really uh, support the notion of seeking treatment, and even within my clinical world, there's a lot of misunderstanding of PTSD and trauma treatment. And therefore, there's a lot of just, uh, there's a lot of people who even seek treatment who are being uh, not treated well enough. And so PTSD tends to persist over time because it it uh, there's not a lot of um, help out there for people, and there's a lot of shame around it. And if you have a significant case of PTSD, just approaching trauma treatment can trigger a lot of symptoms, which I've seen before. And I'll talk I've talked about that in other episodes, so I'm not going to go into that in too too much detail. But I just wanted to talk about PTSD before moving on. With responding to patreon Tyler's email about combat vets, so if we if we look at PTSD with regards to combat vets common what we will see are people having been traumatized while they're at war, and they will have recurring distressing dreams or intrusive memories or flashbacks uh, they will often talk about avoiding things that remind them of it, like maybe they don't want to go back to the theater of war, which is actually really common in in the past uh, 15 years as we've been in, in war in those areas. There's a lot of redeployments, and so people won't want to go back, and I'll get into more of that there later when we talk about Robert Bales. But um, avoidance of uh, external reminders, so People will drink a lot to forget and to just not think to to regulate their emotions. So they'll also have negative alterations in cognition. So um, they might have a hard time remembering what happened when they were at war. They might have a persistent negative feeling of anger and shame and guilt. Uh, They might have a lot of feelings of detachment and estrangement from others. I mean, imagine. You're living in suburban America in our, you know, Twitter world. And then you go halfway across the earth into a war zone and you're in a constant state of fear. And it's a wholly different culture that you're in. And then the military is a wholly different culture. And you're out there and people are dying and you're killing people. And then you come back to the United States and you're just like, you know... That the feeling of estrangement would be quite severe. Hurt Locker really portrays that very well, I think. Um, You might be very irritable. You might be very angry and aggressive. You're in the military, and you're trained to be aggressive with the enemy. And when you come back to the United States, there isn't really a place for that aggression to go. And your PTSD might motivate a lot of aggression. And you might end up pushing a lot of people away because people don't understand why you're being irritable or aggressive with them. Um, so, you know, that that's a common, just very brief discussion of what PTSD can look like in somebody. And obviously suicide and depression as well, anxiety. Okay. So what does the research say about what we're talking about here. Well, first off, the research says that PTSD is one of the most commonly reported psychological outcomes when vets return from from war. So one of the most commonly reported issues that vets will talk about upon returning from war is PTSD. And so pre-trauma or pre-war uh, factors that make someone vulnerable to PTSD. So, So prior to going to war, Something that will make someone more susceptible to PTSD is having a prior psychiatric history. So meaning that you had a previous psych- psychiatric issues in the past like depression or anxiety. And also the personality trait of neuroticism. Neuroticism is one of the big five personality traits, one of the big five personality traits. And it refers to people, it refers to a personality trait of being, shall I say, moody, or having anxiety, or worrying a lot, or or just being generally what we might associate with negative emotions, being angry, being frustrated, being anxious, being uh, having shame, being depressed, feeling isolated. All those things in general are encompassed within what we now call neuroticism or being neurotic. Okay, so being neurotic means that you have a higher chance of of, of coming back from war with PTSD, as is having a prior psychiatric history. But that isn't to say that people who score low on neuroticism do not uh, also suffer from PTSD, because that's not what this is saying. It just it just increases your your likelihood. Also, research shows that support from other people seems to reduce the vulnerability to developing PTSD. So if you're in the military, and you feel like you have a lot of support in your life from your fellow military folk, and from people at home, and just in general, you are less vulnerable to developing PTSD upon being traumatized. Also, research shows that that strong unit cohesion can go either way. So in other words, when you're in the military, you are often teamed up with a group of other military people. And, and if you're, if you have a lot of cohesion and a lot of closeness in that group, that can be that can be very good for pt it can be very it can reduce the likelihood of ptsd because you feel very supported and and when you have emotional support that tends to help with a lot of different issues psychiatrically but on the other hand since you're really close to these people when one of them dies or is injured you're much more affected by it and your grief is much bigger so so being close to your to your teammates can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Also, resilience and the ability to cope, these things, these two things are also associated with a reduced likelihood of having PTSD. So, coping skills, just having a lifestyle where you look positively at life or you don't turn to drinking all the time or you tend to have good self-esteem or you tend to reach out for help. So your general coping practices can stave off PTSD and a lack of coping practices can make you more vulnerable to PTSD. All right. What does the research say about intimate partner violence and vets with PTSD? Well, a number of studies have found that combat vets and their PTSD symptoms are associated with an increased risk of intimate partner violence and in intimate partner aggression. So this this makes total sense, right? If you suffer from PTSD and one of the symptoms is irritability and aggression, then it stands to reason that if you're vulnerable to intimate partner violence then you're you're likely to see more intimate partner violence uh, if you are suffering from PTSD. And I've seen this. I've seen this clinically. And I'll, I I actually I want to start uh, this this episode <laughs> start um, twenty minutes in. I want to start this episode by telling just a little clinical story that I went through. I was treating uh, a vet, combat vet, in the, a, a number of years ago, and I at the time didn't understand PTSD and and combat PTSD and and uh, vet vet PTSD. I was uh, I don't know, just dumb. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I thought I understood PTSD, and I thought I understood uh, what it was like for a vet to come back from the theater of war, but but I really didn't. Mainly because I didn't understand that the that what can happen to somebody can be quite can can look quite different than what the common perception of PTSD is. At least for me. So, for instance, I had this client, and he was seen by everyone around him prior to going to war. war. Now, and when I say this story, it's going to seem obvious to you guys listening, but it was it was totally lost on me at the time. He so well, anyway, so he came to me, and he part of his presentation, and he had a number of different things he wanted to talk with me about. But part of what he would talk about was he would become explosive with his spouse and he would you know very suddenly become very angry and ex- and very aggressive and i think i think what confused me was he would make justifications for it he would he would he wouldn't come to me and say oh my god i lost control the other night he would come to me and he would say my wife really pissed me off and here's what I did. And then I'm, and I'm listening to the story and I'm thinking, wow, you reacted very aggressively to a situation that did not require that amount of anger. And so he, he didn't know, he didn't say I have PTSD and it's causing me to get angry. He just came to me and said, my wife is pissing me off, that kind of thing. And, at the time, I thought, "Man, this guy—he's got some—he's got some issues. He's got some emotional issues. He's got some—just you know—I I saw him as just kind of a typical domestic violence perpetrator, someone who just had a lot of sexist attitudes and and someone who felt entitled to be aggressive with women." And but it wasn't until years later looking back that I realized that a a strong hypothesis with this guy is that he was suffering from PTSD. And he had not been treated or or even labeled as such and he was being triggered by one thing or another and or just generally irritable because of his PTSD and he was losing control sometimes. And that he needed to be treated for PTSD so that this irritable and aggressive behavior would go away. And I completely missed that. And I, you know, didn't, didn't even advise him about that. We never talked about the, you know, the possibility that his time at war could be a factor. It was really just a complete uh, failure on my part. And uh, so why am I telling you this? Well, so this research is now since then, I've learned a lot and really made a point to make sure that I understand this and have subsequently educated myself quite a bit. So, And th- this client was, boy, man, geez, over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago or something a long time ago. Um So I've, I've done a lot of personal, you know, educating myself about that since then. But anyway, so, so the, the 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 learning part of that for me was that it it didn't look like a typical case of PTSD to me. It looked like a, it looked like we just had an angry guy, but sometimes that is PTSD because as a man, you're taught to be strong, you're taught to be aggressive, you're taught to not reveal your vulnerability, and so. The only thing as a clinician that you might see from a client who is suffering from PTSD, a male vet client suffering from PTSD, is the aggression and the irritability and the acting out, the externalization. What you won't necessarily see explicitly are all the other symptoms, the intrusive thoughts, the memories, the shame, the guilt, the pain, the fear. He, he might not ever talk about that because he's been socialized to not talk about it and or he's been socialized to deny it even exists. And so it takes a skilled clinician to recognize that and to be able to help a client to explore those areas, which I wasn't back in the day in that area. Anyway, so essentially, um, when when vets are threatened by something the idea goes that they enter into sort of a survival mode so when they were in afghanistan and they were in very frequent threat of being killed they they develop a mechanism of when you see a threat enter into survival mode which sometimes in in means that you have to not only become quote-unquote aggressive, but actually kill other human beings. And so when you come back stateside and you're threatened by something, like your spouse is uh, not being nice to you or your spouse is opposing something that you're saying, then this this old survival mode kicks in that you developed while you were at war that was very useful to you at war but is no longer useful, you, useful to you stateside. And spouses will talk about erratic explosions from their, from their veteran spouses, or that they always have to walk on eggshells around them. Not always, not always, of course, but uh, for, you know, some uh, a percentage of people who suffer from PTSD and who present in this way. Okay, what does the research say about partners and family? Well, this is a relatively ignored area, but before I go into that, let's take a break. Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by TalkSpace. TalkSpace is a, a super legit online counseling outfit that I fully endorse. I know what they are up to and have looked into their practices to make sure. That I am, uh, you know, promoting something that I believe in, and I do believe in it. I, I'm I'm pretty close with someone who actually works there, Shannon McFarland. She trains the therapist. They they re- so if you're looking for online counseling, and uh, or you're just you just want to experiment with it, you just want to see what it's all about, go to Talkspace.com. Use the promo code Kirk. You have to use that promo code one to get your discount, and also. To let them know that this advertisement worked, which means that they'll pay for more ads to be in this podcast, which means that I can uh, you know, spend more time in this podcast, which means I can do more deep dives, which I've been having a lot of fun with lately. So again, go to Talkspace.com, use the promo code Kirk, and you will, I think, be set up with a therapist pretty quickly. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. So do that now, if you're interested. <laughs> okay, we're back talking about PTSD and as it relates to combat veterans. And we're talking about research, and we're talking about research with regards to the partners and the spouses and the family members and the friends that surround the veteran. The research is relatively sparse in this area, but there is some research. For instance, research indicates that family members of deployed military personnel, of, of deployed So meaning not just military people, but deployed military people. So research indicates that family members of deployed military people experience more mental health problems and less family cohesion than families of non-deployed service members and veterans. So you're really at your worst when, uh, in terms of risk factors, when the military person has been deployed. That's when the family members experience the most uh, distress in general. Obviously, this is on average, not for everybody. Um, There's also a number of terms that we use in the psychological literature regarding being traumatized as a family member of someone who has been traumatized. We call this secondary trauma or secondary trauma stress or Vicarious trauma or indirect trauma. There's a number of different um, terms for this, but, and some of them are different constructs. But in general, the symptoms of what I'm talking about, secondary trauma, is that you have, as a, you know, say you're married to someone who has PTSD and they come back from war. And as a spouse, you haven't been traumatized, but you have all the symptoms of PTSD. So uh, because you're around someone and you're very close to someone who suffers from PTSD, there's a lot of research demonstrating this. And it can happen to spouses, family members, and even therapists. There are therapists who work a lot with traumatized individuals and will exhibit PTSD symptoms themselves. And it's a real thing. Another study found that wives of deployed military men were more likely to be depressed. Another study, children of deployed parents have been shown more behavioral problems. So that's interesting, right? So if when when a military person is deployed, then their children have a greater risk of behavioral problems. The children also exhibited greater substance abuse, so probably teenagers, uh, They the teenagers used much more substances. And also, there's a 10% increase in psychiatric hospitalizations, which is interesting. Also, research shows that people with PTSD have increased difficulty in close relationships. So when military people come back and they are suffering from PTSD, they're their intimate relationships are at risk because PTSD can make it so that it's hard to to navigate uh, intimate relationships partners of veterans with PTSD report greater fears of intimacy greater fears of intimacy also lower satisfaction with relationships in general so again partners of veterans with PTSD report greater fears of intimacy lower satisfaction with relationships and poor psychological adjustments. Uh, So there's a lot of there's a lot of effects to not only the, the veterans with PTSD that are that are a lot, there's a lot of suffering going on, but there's also documented empirical suffering to family members, particularly partners. Some partners of veterans with PTSD become critical and hurtful, which makes matters worse for the veteran and the family and and frankly, the treatment. So sometimes the harm can come from the partner as well. So the, the veteran comes back and is suffering from PTSD. This results in tension in the marriage and then their spouse will start to yell at them and say, you know, stop it or something. And then so this makes makes matters worse. <clears throat> There's a lot of treatment that has been found to help th- with this obviously but it's sometimes not readily available or people don't seek it out for a number of reasons. Some military people are afraid that if they're diagnosed that they, they'll get a, uh, they'll be demoted or they won't get a promotion or they won't be able to be with their teammates anymore. So, now, it's there's a lot of different experiences in the military, so it's hard to generalize, of course, but for some military folk, when they come back from the you know theater of war and they are suffering from PTSD and they know that there's something wrong with them, they don't want to go get help because once they are diagnosed, they might actually be pulled out of the rotation to go back to the theater of war. Whereas all of their friends who are in the military are going back and they, and so they want to go back with their friends because the brotherhood and sisterhood that exists between the military folks, uh, particularly people that are in combat is so strong that they're willing to sacrifice their own mental health for the team. And so... Uh, there's a lot of – so that's one reason why people in the military don't seek treatment. Of course, there's a, a million other reasons, you know, just stigma, uh, lack of awareness, uh, just general shame. There's just a lot of reasons why people don't seek treatment. And obviously not having treatment available to you in your area. Okay. Uh, another study in a survey with U.S. Army spouses – U.S. Army spouses – 43% indicated that adjusting to changes in the soldiers' mood and personality upon return from deployment was one of their greatest challenges. So 43% of spouses of veterans said that my spouse, who you know, came back from the theater of war, his or her mood and personality has changed, and this has been a huge challenge for us. Another study, PTSD has been shown to be the most important determinant of family adjustment difficulties. So when they look at, at family adjustment problems in, in the families of veterans upon returning from the theater of war, PTSD is the most important determinant of family adjustment problems. So it's a common issue, and it's and it's one of the biggest problems for families. Now, this isn't to say that PTSD is the problem, but the problem is, is that when you don't get treated, <laughs> that's the problem. And when you don't have the proper support, because PTSD is is one of those disorders, that's actually fairly easy to treat. When someone comes to me with PTSD in my practice, I can look them right in the eye and confidently say that if they follow the, the treatment protocol that I'm laying out for them, there's a very good likelihood that they will see a a, a reduction in their symptoms, if not complete elimination of their symptoms, I have worked with people with PTSD, and they are walking around in a constant state of post-traumatic stress. And after just twenty weeks of treatment, and it's not easy. It's you know no pain, no gain when it comes to this sort of thing. But after a discreet amount of time we uh, we can see complete eradication of symptoms. Now, having said that, I also work with people for many years and their symptoms do not reduce significantly. Um, so it's not a guarantee, of course, but but a, a number of clients that I've worked with with trauma have, have seen good results. And many other clinicians who specialize in trauma can say the same thing. There's not a lot of diagnoses in the d s m that you can say that for a lot of people who are depressed who are chronically depressed it's actually not in my experience anecdotally as easy to treat as p t s d is um other things that are easy to treat are other kinds of anxieties essentially but uh but schizophrenia you know that that's psychotherapy it can barely put a dent in that. Bipolar psychotherapy isn't gonna change uh, someone's biology in that way, but when it comes to PTSD, when it comes to anxiety, there you can see results. So, so the it's sort of a double tragedy that, that veterans are suffering from PTSD when a very effective psychotherapy is is probably just you know a few blocks away at. at the local therapy office. And if, if they can find a specialist, there, there can absolutely be relief. And, and it just breaks my heart that there are people out there suffering in silence. All right, other uh, research, uh, other issues associated with veterans with PTSD are, and I've already kind of mentioned, but just let me kind of rattle off a bunch of uh, other outcomes, marital dysfunction, Divorce, separation, infidelity, poor family adjustment, more relationship problems, more problems with intimacy, higher levels of relationship distress, more parental problems, so more, you know, having difficulty as a parent, lower family cohesiveness, and less constructive communication. Okay, so what about gender in families? Well, gender roles... In many military families, again, not all because there's, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of military people, but how many people are in the military? I don't know, lots. <laughs> but, but gender roles are often quite traditional and rigid in these families. Not always, of course, but, but they often are. The men, for instance, gender-wise, stereotypically, men are socialized and expected to be strong and unemotional and and aggressive and hostile when they're upset. And women are socialized to be very nurturing and quote-unquote emotional, and also to some extent submissive. And these roles can present a problem when a veteran returns from war and is suffering from PTSD because the the husband is socialized to be strong and unemotional and aggressive. And so while he's suffering from PTSD, he doesn't get help. He doesn't ask for help because he's socialized to not ask for help and he becomes aggressive with people around him because that's what he's been socialized to do. Meanwhile, the wife is socialized to nurture and so she is desperately trying to help him even though he's not opening up. But in the end, she just becomes submissive to him and she doesn't feel like, and she feels powerless because she doesn't know what to do. And so these, these rigid traditional gender roles can, you know, be okay at times, as long as there isn't any kind of major problem like PTSD that will gum up the works. So the solution is to make your gender, uh, you know, manifestations and expressions more flexible. You know, the man needs to admit that he's suffering, he needs to ask for help, he needs to learn how to cry. He needs to let his wife take control at times when he is suffering. And the wife needs to take control at times. She might need to become the primary breadwinner for a while, which means that the man might need to be the primary parent and the primary, you know, person who takes care of the household. And so gender roles can present a, a problem for veterans with PTSD and their families. And, Education and psychotherapy to help them and family therapy and marital therapy to, you know, can help them to become more uh, flexible in that way. This is why, you know, I'll I'll just make a plug for family therapy and couples therapy. I'm a marital, I'm a marriage and family therapist, a couple and family therapist. And it's something that us uh, couple and family therapists, when we see situations like this, we just say, oh, my God let me at this client. Let me at these people. I can help. I mean, part of our our specialty is helping couples regarding their gender roles and helping them to be more flexible, helping men who are socialized to not feel, helping them to show their emotions right there in session in front of their wife. Um, okay, so... Another thing that we should talk about here are LGBTQIA people. Uh, They obviously are in the military as well, and there is almost no research regarding LGBTQ people within the military, but there is some research. Um, But it doesn't necessarily apply too much to PTSD other than to say that When you're a person who has been traumatized by your society because of your LGBTQIA status, you are hypothetically – and there's strong evidence to suggest that you're more vulnerable to trauma at war because you have already sort of been beaten down by society in terms of uh, being marginalized and and being harmed and oppressed – because of your LGBTQ status. And so the theory goes is that LGBTQIA people are, are more vulnerable to, to PTSD in, in war and therefore should be taken care of even more so than non-LGBTQ people. Okay, some research about stigma. There's a lot of stigma from the general population, for all veterans, whether or not they have PTSD or not, they can be treated badly when they come back home. They might feel as though no one really understands them, and also there's research to suggest that people that in our society, but people who surround veterans will underestimate the effects of PTSD and the effects of trauma, and just think like, well, you know, they'll get over, they'll get over it, or. Well, you know that's what they're trained to do, so it's not that big of a deal. And or on their way to war, they they just think, well, you know, they're going to war, and they'll do that thing, and then they'll come home, and everything will be okay. And uh, it, it that attitude doesn't help. Let's just put it that way. Also, another problem that is reported by by some people returning from war is that they will go to their spouses and their family members and their friends and they'll they'll want to talk about their experiences but their family members and friends and spouses might be horrified by what they hear you know you you you're at you're at war and you're killing people and your friends are dying and you see these incredible situations that are just you know at the very least very significant moments in your life um And also might be very traumatizing, and therefore you you, you want to talk about it because it's healthy to talk about those situations uh, usually. So you come home and you want to tell someone, and then you you tell someone a a tiny little story, and they just look at you with horror and disgust. Like, you did that? You killed someone? And, you know, because the general population is just not accustomed to that kind of talk. And just a little soapboxing right now, I find our society be, our society to just be completely busted up about this. Right now, our government, and I'm talking George W. Bush government, I'm talking Obama government, I'm talking now the Trump government, um, has been uh, sending our citizens, our people, overseas to engage in killing and to be killed. And it, it is a, a gruesome, uh, a terrible, horrific thing. Now, I, I'm not – this isn't a political podcast, so I'm not going to endorse or reprimand the decisions by the government. But that is the reality that we're doing. And when they come back and they want to talk about what happened – then we can't look at them and say, oh my God, keep that to yourself. We we can't do that to them. That's not fair. Uh the you know, you can disagree with the government, whatever, but um now I'm not saying you have to listen to every gory detail or something, but it's 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 this weird thing that our society engages in, in which we you know we're like well you know we're 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 over there doing something good right you know we're we're spreading freedom or we're helping the innocent or we're helping to uh spread american ideals around the world and again you can debate whether or not that's actually happening but then when they come back and they start telling what we sent them over there to do then we we can't as a society shun them <laughs> we we have to say yeah f- feel free to tell me whatever you want to tell us because that's you know we sent you over there to do something in fact why don't you tell us exactly what happened so we can all know whether or not what we're doing over there is actually worth it um so you know in, in this way i i kind of wish there was a law that said that every single congressperson would have to Listen to every single soldier stories or or they would have to go to every single uh, funeral for every single veteran or something, because it, if if you still want to go to war after all that, then OK. But if you don't, then maybe you should as a government rethink this. So, again, it's just a little soapboxy on that. All right. Uh, women. What about Women. I've been kind of referring to veterans without referring to gender, but I've also been talking about a lot of men, veterans. What about women? There's a, there's a lot of women in the military and there's a lot of women with PTSD. However, uh, there's a greater proportion of women with PTSD who have been sexually assaulted by a fellow military person. So, There are are plenty of women who suffer from traditional war trauma, they're in the theater of war, and they experience trauma, just like any other soldier. But there's also a pretty sizable percentage of women who suffer from PTSD because they were raped or gang raped by other military people. So there's that. Also, Uh, Perhaps as a result of this, female veterans are more likely to suffer from mental health issues than male veterans. So just think about that. And another statistic here, about one quarter of women veterans have reported being sexually traumatized during their military service. Also, there are, there's literature that suggests that, or points to the fact that Uh, PTSD treatment is often focused on men because uh, for whatever reason. And so a lot of women in the military who have PTSD might have trouble getting connected with services because they might feel excluded by the male centered treatment. So there's that. Okay. Now, let me talk about some other things here, some personal stories. But before we get into that, let's take a break. Hey, deserving listeners, today's op- episode, today's episode, today's episode is brought to you by TalkSpace, which is an online counseling outfit that I fully endorse. I've looked into their practices and really wanted to make sure that I was promoting something that I can get behind. And I can definitely get behind this online counseling service. They make sure that their therapists are fully licensed. They train them in online counseling. The price is is pretty affordable and reasonable. If you use the promo code Kirk, you actually get a discount. Also, uh, when you use the promo code Kirk, it signals to Talkspace that this advertisement works, which means that... They'll want to sponsor more episodes, which means that everyone wins. So, if you're if you're interested in online counseling, or if you're just even just looking for someone to chat with every day, because this is on uh, Talkspace, you you get contact with your therapist every day, which is pretty cool, right? So, go to Talkspace, use the promo code Kirk, and get your discount and. Start your online counseling experience today. <laughs> do it if you're if you're interested. I think I think it's pretty cool. If I mean, if you're on the fence, again, just just give it a try and see if it's for you. Maybe it's not for you, but if it is for you, I, I think it's a it's a pretty cool service. Pretty convenient. You can do it from anywhere, right? And again, you have, you have contact with your therapist every day. Pretty cool. All right. End of commercial. Okay, we're back. So I want to talk about some personal experiences. Regarding this in in my personal life and sort of in my personal professional life, a friend of mine, Wyatt goldsmith, he died in Afghanistan. He was in the special forces, and I knew him for I, I probably knew him only as a special forces guy he He was a, a wonderful kid he was younger than me. I, I'm I'm really good friends with his older sister, actually, and so he seemed like a little brother to me. And he was a sweet guy. He was kind of shy, but really smart. In fact, whenever he would come back from from Iraq or Afghanistan, I, you know, this is during the during the height of you know like, like the George W. Bush times and. And I would ask him, I was just like, so what are we doing over there? And what do you think, you know, what's going on? And what do we expect to accomplish? And what do you think is going to happen? And he he would always have these extremely complicated (laughs) answers to those questions. And and I I would be mostly lost by what he was telling me. I mean, it's just so interesting if you just sort of pull the average American like myself and just ask me, like, you know, you know, what? what were we doing in Afghanistan or why did we invade Iraq? You'll get these like extremely stupid answers <laughs> or simplistic answers. And when you actually talk to uh, probably people in the military, uh, you're going to get, you're going to get these really interesting answers that are going to involve a lot of different factors, you know, history and, and, you know, just all these different things. And so I, I just, what I always like to talk with him and I also liked hearing about his his experiences in war. He had the he's special forces, so they were involved. And you know he he was in he was uh, I I, may, I don't know how much detail I can go into, but he he was at the front lines in a lot of different uh, operations. Shall we say he wasn't in the back with the gear? He was he was in one of those front line guys. And him and his team, him and his teammates, were uh, very specialized uh, soldiers who did a lot of combat stuff. And he would tell me stories about these training missions that they would go on that were that were terrifying to me. Uh, he he went on one training where they they did parachuting at night, and they are trained to pull their. Uh, you know, parachute out when, when as close as they can to the ground as possible, because then they're the least likely to be spotted. You know, if, if you jump out of the plane and instantly pull your chute, then while you're, you know, gliding down, you're much more likely to be spotted. Whereas if you if you careen toward the earth at, at terminal velocity, and pull your parachute at the last possible moment, then is just less likely to be detected and so they're doing a training mission they're doing a training exercise and they have this instructor who is this expert in in this sort of thing and so they all jump out of the plane and Wyatt, my uh, friend but mainly the younger brother of my friend he is careening toward the earth and he can't open his chute and it's, it's caught on something <laughs> And he's telling me this story, and he's totally calm. He's telling me a story; he's totally calm, and I'm just and I'm like on the edge of my seat. You know, I'm, I, my hands are sweating just now thinking about it. <laughs> and he's telling me a story. He's like, "Yeah, you know, my chute was was stuck, so I, I turned over on my back so that I could try to uh, really yank on the on the cord, and and that wasn't working. So I tried to pull my emergency uh, shoot, and that didn't work." And then the instructor uh, came out of nowhere, because remember, they're at night, okay, (laughs) the instructor came out of nowhere, and, and pulled my and managed to wrestle with my chute and and pulled my parachute and then pulled his own. And they were well below the threshold that they were supposed to be, (laughs) they were, you know, they're supposed to pull much higher. And so but anyway, he was he was okay. And he's telling me the story. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of a funny little story. And I'm, I'm like, are you kidding me? You you were this close to dying. I mean, all the things that had to go right in that situation. I mean, the the instructor had to have noticed one. I mean, imagine you're flying toward the earth, falling as an instructor. And you've got all these other military guys that are falling uh, along with you and you have to, you know, stay close, you know, because people fall at different rates and stuff. And so the instructor has to see him and then and then notice and then go and then somehow get himself over to him and then wrestle with the with the parachute. I mean, my hands are sweaty just thinking about this and and why it's just like, yeah, you know, it's military stuff. <laughs> he, he was just the most mellow guy. But he'd also tell me about these, you know, these times where they were at war. And they were in extremely tight uh, circumstances, tight spaces with the enemy. I mean, the enemy, I don't know if we always need to call it the enemy, but the people they were fighting. And they also, they were training locals to fight against, you know, so they might be training Afghan uh you know, pro western Afghan people to fight against Taliban people. So they are trying to in the midst of, you know, exchanging gunfire and RPG fire and all this other stuff, they're trying to train these locals how to do this stuff. And uh, the locals aren't as well equipped, and they're not as well trained, and they're not as well disciplined. And and so there's all these, you know, complicating factors going on. And he would tell me these stories, and they were just like, I just remember just, you know, we're at a party or something, and everyone else is doing all the party stuff. And I'm just sitting there on the couch telling me, okay, and then what happened? And he'd tell me, and I'd be like, wait, wait, you kind of, well, what happened? How, you know, help me visualize what, what was the, what did this street look like? You know, and he'd draw a little picture, and I'd be like, where were you? And he'd be like, right here. And I'd be like, okay, so so and he got shot too you know he he got injured um and uh, continued on even though he'd been shot he he continued um and that again that's just military guys they get shot i mean special forces guys particularly tough guys they get shot and they just continue on and um and uh i got to know his his teammates too, because he he was very close to his fellow special forces teammates. They called them teammates. That's what he called them. And frankly, they drank a lot. (laughs) They drank a lot. I mean, they, they drank these guys. Um, Wyatt had this bar in Tacoma. So that there's a big military base uh, in near Seattle, uh, Fort Lewis, McCord, And it's a it's a big military base. And we also have a lot of like submarine bases and Navy bases and stuff around here. It's uh, there's a lot of military stuff going on, but particularly down south by Tacoma. So you got Seattle and then you got Tacoma, which is further south, about a half an hour, about an hour south. And so if you live in Tacoma, there's a lot of military guys anyway. So he lived in Tacoma downtown and there's a bar around the corner and he was always there. He was like Norm. Everyone knew his name. He even had like a plaque uh, that had his name on it uh, because he had successfully drank enough Guinness or something or enough Jameson. I don't know what what it was, but there was some kind of thing that if you drink enough of something, you got a plaque and and he had a plaque and, and he was a drinker. And at the time I just thought, you know, okay, he likes to drink and Whatever, but looking back, it's it's clear to me, and I'm guessing it was clear to him because he was a smart guy. Was the being in the special forces was so stressful, and and all the PTSD and all the terribleness was so stressful that uh, when you came back to the states, alcohol was your best friend. You just needed that to calm down. You needed that to cope, and and that's what he did. He 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 drank quite a bit. He wasn't a bad drinker he wasn't angry he was he just he just became talkative (laughs) and and he was really funny too he was he was a very funny guy uh he could he could really crack you up but he uh while at war in afghanistan there was uh an rpg that had exploded nearby and a, a piece of shrapnel had come at him from above and gone through his his uh I don't know what you call it but like clavicle upper shoulder area and and down, you know, to his heart. I know this because uh at the various memorials that took place, I um the the teammates and the guys who were there, they didn't talk about the specifics. They just said that he died. But I, I don't know. I just wanted to know the specifics, and so I, I, I kind of grilled the sergeants who were there, and I just said, "So what happened?" And they're like, "Well, you know," and I was like, "No, I, I want to know." And so they're like, "Well, you know," and then then they told me all the details, and because Wyatt had he had armor, you know, on, but the armor didn't protect that upper shoulder, so because the shrapnel came from above, it managed to get in there, and and so. Apparently, he died really quick, if not instantly. And um, so, you know, there's some comfort in that. There's also comfort in that since I talked with Wyatt so much, I knew that he fully accepted the possibility that he could die while he was at war. He would tell me that he's made peace completely with that possibility that he could die. I mean, he'd been shot already and he'd had... He had, you know, teammates who had been shot or died. And so, you know, he's special forces. And so he was, a, you know, probably he figured, well, I'm probably going to go back several times. And and so, uh, you know, there's a good chance that I'm going to, you know, my number is going to come up at some point. And he was completely at, at peace with that, at least um, outwardly. He was very religious and uh, I'm guessing thought, you know, that he was going to go to heaven, because he was, he felt that he was doing something for the betterment of other human beings. He he felt that he was doing God's work. So when, when he died, I was pretty heavily involved in all the memorial services and whatnot, and got to see firsthand all the different effects that this sort of loss has on people and on the sort of ongoing effects that this, that trauma has on his teammates, because I kind of got to know his teammates a little bit. For instance, one of his teammates was probably the closest to Wyatt. His, his name was Chuck and he was similar to Wyatt. Very, very sweet guy um, you know these these are big guys. By the way, if you wanted to sort of picture them in your mind, Wyatt and Chuck—they're you know like six five, you know two hundred and thirty pounds or something—and uh, you know white kids and um, you know big drinkers, <laughs> uh, nice guys, macho guys, but also uh, very open and. Uh, You know they're young, so they're you know quite liberal in their points of view, and and they're from Seattle. So, but anyway, so Chuck um, also died soon after that. But he didn't die, although although he had been shot at war, and so I just have to tell. I don't know why I'm going on this, Jack, but I just feel like I have to tell this story. Chuck. Who was Wyatt's very close friend? Who I got to know after Wyatt died, and and I was talking with Chuck, and and he and he wanted to tell me about a story about Wyatt, and he said, so Chuck is telling me, yeah, so we're in this firefight, and then all of a sudden, I I realized I'd been shot, and I, you know, I fell down, and I'd been shot. He'd been shot through, um, you know that uh, just the top of your breast bone, you know, the the bottom of your neck you know, that little notch right there between the bones. <laughs> um, he'd been shot kind of around that zone and, and, it, and it had gotten through his the back of his neck. I mean, imagine that. Imagine getting shot there. There are there's certain places getting shot that I think would be really scary. And getting shot there, I think, would be extremely scary. You know where like tracheotomies happen? It's somewhere around that zone. And he went down and there were a lot of people being shot in their team and so he wasn't the only one and so when the helicopters came to come get him uh he was on a stretcher ready to go and i think what happened was they were putting other people onto the helicopter first before chuck and chuck was panicking and he was he was saying and he was laughing about it as he's telling the story he's like yeah i was i was panicking, and, I was asking why they weren't putting me on the helicopter or something along those lines. Was some kind of he was like panicking and he was looking for people to panic with him. And he looked to Wyatt and he said like, you know, help me out here. And and Wyatt said something like, you'll be okay, pal. Like, calm down. <laughs> and Chuck would just laugh about that. Was just like, it's, and he said like, yeah. And so when Wyatt said that, I instantly calmed down because I. Realized that i was i was you know being a wuss <laughs> and when i think about that i'm just like um i think if you're shot through the neck it it's cool to be at least a little bit of a wuss in a situation like that but somehow f- for these guys you know it's just part of the job and so um So, so Chuck had, you know, he, he had experienced his own traumas, obviously. And then when Wyatt died, that was a trauma for him. And he died uh, in the States back home in between deployments because he got in this really nasty motorcycle accident. And I don't know all the details because I wasn't that close to, to Chuck. I only kind of heard through the grapevine about what had happened to him ultimately, ultimately, but, to me, the, my narrative about this whole thing, about, about Chuck passing away, was that although it was a motorcycle accident, I, I attribute his, his sort of perhaps uh, risky behavior, shall I call it, to his suffering as a war veteran. Uh, unknown, of course, but um, I that's how I see it. I see, I see Wyatt as a victim of war. And I see Chuck as a victim of the, the effects of war, if that makes any sense. Not that Wyatt also didn't suffer, but, but, um, so there's that. Um, I also want to talk about, uh, something I talked about in a podcast a long time ago. Um, F- almost five years ago, maybe. Yeah, wow. Um, so uh, my friend and my colleague, Mark Russell, uh, he, he's a professor at Antioch University with me. And he used to work in the military as a psychologist, but now he works um, as, a, as a professor at a university. And he started an institute at Antioch that focuses on these issues. It's focused on war stress, and he's told me a lot of stories about how the military and the government and society is just ignoring the suffering of soldiers and has it all wrong. Just, he, he's very compelling in convincing me that I had no idea what was going on in the world until he, he, he informed me. And and what really changed my mind was when I talked with him about the Robert Bales case. So let me remind people about the Robert Bales case. It was twenty twelve. It it's commonly referred to as the Kandahar massacre. Basically, Robert Bales was a U.S. military guy uh who went on a killing spree and killed sixteen innocent Afghan civilians. He just went out into Kandahar one random day or evening i can't remember what and he had been drinking and he just started killing civilians i mean imagine you're a trained military killer and you're just walking through this village just just murdering people and then he he gathered up the bodies and burned them i mean it, it was extensive in terms of what he was doing it took a long time and we did an episode about it a long time ago. I forget what we said, but anyway. So when they try to figure out why this guy did it, I'll, I'll tell you, when I first heard the report, I just thought, oh boy, just another racist douchebag who decided to kill the enemy because he hates the enemy. And this is just another reason why we shouldn't be over there you know it was just this very limited understanding of of what was happening i, ju- I just figured well it has to be the result of racism against muslims i mean hatred toward this is this is just an example of ha- a muslim hatred or something but as the story unfolded and particularly as dr mark russell my friend and colleague Illuminated me, too. I realized it was much much more complicated than that. For instance, Apparently, Robert Bales was getting very tired of going to the front lines in Afghanistan. Remember, I was telling you about how uh, military folk when They experience repeated traumas. They 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 don't want to go back (laughs) because They're already suffering from PTSD and they want to avoid the trauma. And so they don't want to go back. So there seems to be some indication that Robert Bales might have been suffering in this way. He, he was an older military guy. Um, not old old, but I think in his late 30s or something, and had been deployed many times. And so before going back to Afghanistan, uh, back to Afghanistan, you know, that would uh, have the Kanhar massacre in it, he, he was apparently telling people that he didn't he didn't want to go. Which is significant, I just have to say, because um, a lot of military guys uh, are, you know, are not ambivalent in that way. Um, many are, but anyway, so that's a notable and and might be um, an indication of something. Also, Robert Bales was found to have no history of a mental disorder. So that was another thought. It's like, well, maybe he's delusional or something, uh, but he didn't have any history of, of mental illness and he had undergone extensive mental health screening um, in the past because he was a sniper. So that's another thing to think about if you're a sniper. Uh, I'm imagining there's a lot of um, killing involved in that job, right? You're not a cook. <laughs> you're a sniper. Um, also, in 2010, he suffered from a concussion in a car accident, and he underwent traumatic brain injury treatment at Fort Lewis near, nearby Seattle. But he was deemed healthy after the, after that. But again, traumatic brain injury, we know, is associated with a lot of um, a lot of interesting behaviors later on. Also, a high-ranking U.S. official said that that he, he thought it was a combine that the massacre was caused because Robert Bales was stressed out; he was drunk and he was having domestic issues. Apparently he was having issues with his wife. Robert Bales had been taking an anti-malaria medication that can cause some psychiatric issues. I don't know much about that factor, but that one seems a little dubious, but it's not my area. Robert Bales said that he'd taken steroids so that he could be, quote-unquote, huge and jacked, <laughs> and... Robert Bales blamed the steroids for making him irritable and angry, which is, you know, possible for sure. He has been through the court system, and he pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty. And when the judge asked him, why did you kill all those innocent Afghan civilians? Robert Bales said that he has asked himself that question a million times. And he said that there's not a good reason in this world for why I did the horrible things that I did. So, not a very satisfying answer, but you know, uh, it, it's understandable given what I'm about to, you know, talk about. A six-person jury sentenced Robert Bales to life in prison without parole. Bales is incarcerated at United States disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth. I first saw this situation as, you know, like I was saying, just some racist douchebag who went on a killing spree because he hated Muslims, you know, because Americans hate Muslims. But again, after talking with Dr. Russell, I realized that there is a much more likely answer. Dr. Russell, he educated me on the history of war and of war atrocities. He told me about how in every war we have documented cases going back to, you know, civil war, even further back that there are many de- documented cases of soldiers exhibiting very strange behavior, like going on killing sprees. And the consensus among the experts in the know is that the stress of war causes people to do things that they would never do. Otherwise things like going on a killing spree and, and, Uh, In the press, we only hear about very particular and very extreme examples like the Robert Bales examples, but vets are exhibiting odd behavior every day. Things like suicide, intimate partner violence, substance abuse, aggression, uh, other, other kinds of crimes. They're happening all the time. But of course, the government doesn't want the public to know about all these things because they want to give the impression that going to war doesn't have any consequences, at least to Americans. But there's a lot of consequences to Americans, even to non veterans, you know, just people surrounding the veterans who come home and, and are suffering and exhibit behaviors that cause other people to suffer. The government doesn't want you to know that. And so when these extreme examples happen. It, they're so extreme that society just can't ignore it, and therefore looks at it and and but labels it as some sort of aberrant, crazy behavior. And it is aberrant. But when you look at the entirety of all the different quote unquote atrocities or you know extreme behaviors that uh, war veterans will exhibit, you it, you see it within that context. It's, so it's not it's it's not quite so strange. When, when you see it in light of all the different uh, suffering that, that war veterans go through. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to see Robert Bales in a sympathetic light. I think what he did was terrible, and the law should do what it does. But the bigger issue here is that we need to help these people, which I'll get into more in a second. So in, uh, for instance... Um, just to uh, look at some statistics, being a veteran almost doubles your risk of suicide. Now, the statistics are a little hard to nail down, because it's not experimental uh, data, obviously. But but being a veteran seems to almost double your risk of committing uh, or of killing yourself. I keep wanting to say committing suicide. And I know that's not the language we're supposed to use anymore, but it's just so embedded in my brain. But anyway, so being a vet almost doubles risk of suicide. A study from 2014 found that an average of 20 veterans died from suicide each day. Just think about that. And I know I've talked about this in other episodes, but imagine if we had 20 military people dying overseas a day. Imagine if uh, every day we got a report from the military saying that twenty of our military people died. Now, presumably, some of these veterans would have killed themselves anyway, because, like I said, suicide is—you know—it it doubles your risk. So, let's say that ten of them are are suicides that are as a result of war, and the other ten are they're killing themselves and it's the factors aren't attributed to the fact that they went to war. So even if we just say 10 veterans died from suicide as a result of going to war every day, imagine if 10 military people died in Afghanistan every day. We as a society would freak the F out, but because these people are coming back from war And they're killing themselves. And because we're in denial about all this, and because we shame suicide, and because we don't report on these issues, we just look the other way, and we don't care. If everyone knew that engaging in war would kill 10 veterans a day as a result of war uh, from suicide, I wonder how many people would change their mind about going to war. It's just an interesting question. So when Mark Russell heard about the Robert Bales case, and he heard about what Robert, Robert Bales did, he just saw it as another example of war stress. So the solution is to actually address the stress of war, which Dr. Russell argues is not happening, which is why he has been doggedly um, advocating for this sort of thing. We need to make it possible for for people to get treatment. Um, there are movements and services available. There are movements afoot to help veterans with PTSD. So it's not like it's non-existent. Uh, the VA has increased their efforts to prevent suicide and to treat PTSD. So we're headed in the right direction, but we're not moving fast enough, particularly as a society in my point of view, because... Many vets are still suffering in silence and their families are suffering in silence too. So my advice uh, for clinicians, pay attention. Don't be like me when I was first starting out as a therapist and just completely ignorant of what PTSD can actually look like. And if you don't know, then get consultation. If you have a client who is a veteran or you have a client who's in a family with a veteran Consult with a specialist for a half an hour about that, and 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 you know talk about the case and get some help. If I had done that, I probably back then I probably could have uh, prevented myself from making mistakes as a therapist. So, clinicians, clinicians out there, pay attention and, and consult, and don't be stupid like me. Veterans like Patron Tyler who wrote in, you know, ask for help. Patron Tyler. Ha, is reaching out to this podcast for help. I'm assuming patron Tyler is, um, you know, doing all sorts of things. I hope you are, Tyler. Let me know if you need help with this. Don't suffer alone, there are resources. Um, also, Tyler, reach out to your fellow veterans. You can, you're all in this together. So, um, you know, support and asking for help is really the key. My advice to spouses and family members and friends of veterans is to love them. You, you should do your best to be yourself and love that loved one who's a veteran. Be there for them. Reach out to them. And also, frankly, protect yourself if necessary. If they're becoming aggressive, if they're you know, engaging in intimate partner violence, protect yourself. You have the right to do that if that is indeed happening. But, um, you know, if if that's not happening, then obviously, you know, love them, be there for them, reach out to them. There are, And also know that there are resources for family members of veterans. There are therapy, there's therapists who specialize in this, there's family therapists who specialize, there's couples therapists who specialize in this, there are support groups that specialize in this. Get help. There is... Nothing to lose by going to a support group once every two weeks. There's nothing to lose. So uh, go to one of those. They're probably free. Society, my advice to society, stop avoiding this. Why are we always talking about the latest Trump tweet instead of paying attention to real issues like this? Society, hold your government officials accountable for taking actions about this. And society, please um, think about whether or not war is worth it. War always produces this kind of suffering. That's what Dr. Mark Russell has taught me about is that these kinds of atrocities are not isolated to our current war, that every war you know, even the good wars like World War Two and World War One, there are documented cases of of veterans coming back and doing things like this, and uh, it's just not talked about because we it doesn't it's not it doesn't uh, add to the romantic vision we have of these wars, or at least of the veterans. And so, war always produces suffering. Um, you know, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, I think people know that I wish there wasn't any war. But I do have to say that if there wasn't any war, then we wouldn't have any of these problems. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and and if we're going to be responsible about war, some, some wars are justifiable, I, I guess. And if we're going to be responsible about the decision about war and about how long a war should be, then we need to know what the consequences are naturally. And we need to pay attention to this and we need to not be in denial of it. And we need to not turn away from it. We need to help our veterans as a society, instead of ignoring them, we need to listen to them and we need to, uh, be there for them in the way that they want us to be there for them. They, you know, f- for many veterans, they've, they've been through a lot and, um, and, and I'm not even, let me just say, I'm not talking about necessarily even just U.S. military. I'm talking about any veteran from any war. I mean, as a human being who lives on this planet, I, I don't really necessarily care what country a veteran comes from. If if a so-called enemy was a veteran and came to me for help, I, I wouldn't see that person as Uh, any different than I saw any other military person, even if they're from the United States, or if they're, you know, if 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 a Taliban military person came to me for therapy, I, I would have compassion for him and and would want to help him with his PTSD just as much as anybody else. Now, again, I'm not or not again, but I'm not saying that I'm condoning Taliban behavior. But as a therapist, that's not my job. To I don't condone or 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 reprimand uh, that kind of stuff professionally. I'm here to help people. So, my, again, it's getting a little off topic. But my my point is is that the things that I'm saying extend to every society and to every military. Perhaps if th- we can do better regarding this that our societies will become more understanding of ourselves and of each other and be less likely to go to war in the first place alright well that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle thanks for joining me out there please take care of yourself because you deserve it you really really do hey deserving listeners today's episode is brought to you by Space, our very first official uh, what do you call them? sponsor very first official sponsor Go to Talkspace. Use the promo code Kirk for your discount. K I R K. If you're looking for a therapist and you're having trouble finding one, or if you're just sort of curious about what online counseling is, I highly recommend Talkspace. They only work with fully licensed people. They're they're really trying to be a super legit outfit that follows all the ethical guidelines and the standards of care and the legal, you know. Uh, Stuff, whatever you call it, and so uh, Talkspace is a is a legit outfit that that I endorse. I didn't want to I didn't want to get behind something that I couldn't, uh, f- you know, fully endorse to my listeners because I'm pretty protective of you guys. And so, uh, if you're interested in online counseling, again, Talkspace use the promo code Kirk K I R K K I R K and you get a discount and plus that signals to talkspace that you're one of my listeners which means this is, which means that this advertisement worked which means that they will want to be sponsors of more episodes which means that that'll be more revenue which means that I can pull time away from my practice which means I could spend more time on the podcast which means that we can do more deep dives into all the various different things that you guys want me to do deep dives into and so do so now if if you're interested again talkspace use the promo code kirk uh, and do it you know i i again if you're just curious give it a try see if it's not for you you'll figure that out and you can cancel your subscription but if it's for you it could be a really great thing all right end of commercial <laughs>